Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18, written and read by me, Cooper Zale. This is part 32, Grindelwald. I finally make it to my little paradise in the Alps and engage with the hostel's cast of fellow travelers, some new and some, surprisingly, that I have met before. It's paradise doubly so, because they actually have hot showers. It was Tuesday morning, November 27, 1973, and given little good sleep on the long overnight train ride from Venice the previous night, I ended up sleeping in and missed the breakfast I had paid for. It was 9.05 when I got down to the little dining room and breakfast was served just until 9, and things ran on schedule in Switzerland. They were low-key about stuff, but they stuck to their schedules. My first reaction was frustration. Not so much because I was hungry and there was nothing to eat, but more because I had missed a meal I had paid for with my precious remaining funds. I had figured with a big breakfast I would even skip lunch and save that money. But after contemplating my initial reaction for a moment, I realized that the good long sleep probably had been more than worth it. I had heard the night before that unlike most other hostels, the showers here had actual hot water. And in lieu of that breakfast of delicious yogurt and granola, I confirmed that the shower was indeed hot, and I indulged and took a long one, including washing my hair. Naked in the little individual shower stall, my body completely cleansed of dirt and sweat as it rarely was recently, I let the deliciously warm water rain down upon me, and my mind rewound my narrative back to my last real shower. It had been nearly three weeks ago in the hotel in Paris, where Walter, who had picked up my travel partner Steve and me in southern France and driven us to the French capital and paid for our night's lodging. Since then, I had only had what my mom would call bird baths, where I dabbed a wet, maybe soapy washcloth on parts of my body. And as the deliciously warm water continued to embrace my naked body and soothe my tenuous soul, I recalled the sense I had had just the previous day going through the blackness of that tunnel under the Alps, of the world ending in the long-feared apocalypse. With all the good news from the Middle East and the Tribune, why did I even go there? I loved trains, and I loved tunnels just as much. One of my favorite parts of our train journey to my grandparents at Christmas time, as a little kid, was a long tunnel under the Detroit River in Ontario. Maybe not as long as this tunnel, but still. Yeah, I was claustrophobic, but that was more about not being able to move my arms and legs. Was this somehow claustrophobia on some grand scale that triggered some sort of panic attack like my mom was subject to? I thought of the lyric of the Beatles song that had kidnapped my mind yesterday on the train. Oh, that magic feeling, nowhere to go. I had always embraced it as positive, the magic of having no place you had to go, no schedule to meet and just be in the moment. So did I now need somewhere to go? 
then exploding out of the other side of that tunnel into a white winter world, cold and pristine and evocative of happy memories from my youth of that same train trip to my grandparents. Then the last leg of my journey winding up the mountain in a train filled with happy, energetic school kids filled with life and hope. And then this place that I had heard so much about from my backpacker cohort and I had so anticipated getting to. So here I finally was, in paradise of sorts. Certainly this rare hot shower wasn't diminishing that characterization. Out in the tiny personal anteroom to the shower stall, I put my long underwear on, under my jeans, for the very first time in my entire journey, and my big clunky hiking boots in honor of the snow and wintry cold, and made my way into the common room. The place had been so dark and cozy last night, bathed in orange firelight, but was now filled with the diffused light of a cloudy winter morning from the big picture window that looked out onto the deck and down to the valley below. I walked out on the deck and felt the cold, moist air tickle my nostrils. The fog of yesterday had departed to some degree this morning, and I could see the village cloistered in the valley below, among the evergreen trees and snow-covered meadows. I could see where the mountains began to rise from the edges of the valley, but then quickly disappeared in the low-hanging cloud cover. I was keen before anything else to see the vaunted view, but I guess that would have to wait for another clearer day. I actually enjoyed the sense of anticipation and unfulfilled expectation. Always had. After about 15 minutes of just standing there and Taking in the relaxed energy of this quiet mountain valley, I returned from the chilly air of the deck to the warmth of the common room. Derek was now sitting regally in the big overstuffed chair facing the picture window, with forearms on either arm of the chair, with his Roger Daltrey mane like some golden-haired potentate. Matt and Michael were attending him, sitting on the big couch to his right facing the fireplace, the two of them going on about sledding down the hill and having snowball fights with some kids who actually lived here in the village. Derek sat quietly in his seated pose, deigning to listen, or at least not speak, during their passionate tales of snow play, but his eyes tracked mine. I decided to sit in the companion overstuffed chair facing him, on the other side of the couch, across the long, low, split-log table. I considered mirroring the way he sat in the chair, with arms on the chair arms, but decided it was more coopster to adopt a completely different pose. Slouching into the chair cushions, my legs spread and my hiking boot-clad feet stretched out, with hands behind my head. He looked at me like he had often before, like some pretender to his throne. Michael and Matt stopped speaking and looked expectantly at me. Seizing the initiative before I could speak, Derek differentiated himself from the more childlike stories of his comrades. There's this hot Swedish chick at the hostel with awesome tits that I would fuck in a minute, he said. My unquenched libido made me surrender my attention to him though I was uncomfortable that he was speaking loud enough that others sitting in the room, including a couple young women, might hear him. 
but perhaps part of his attempt to assert his alpha status involved the three of us realizing that he was speaking loud enough for some women in the room to hear him and that he didn't care. Matt looked at me nodding, rolling his eyes as if to second the hot and awesome characterizations. Michael nodded too, but without the facial expressions. As Derek painted the picture, the young woman with a stunning face and body was named Monica and was Swedish, with a stereotypical tall stature, blonde hair, blue-blue eyes, and striking countenance and figure. But she's a total slut, he added with kind of a grimacy grin, and I wasn't sure whether he meant that as a compliment or rebuke, maybe both. Feeling in full coopster mode now, I was not going to be intimidated by this guy anymore. Maybe by those four somewhat older-looking guys with their stubbly faces on the Venice train station platform, trashing Jen and Sarah, but not by fucking Derek. Fucking just out of high school Derek. Never again. So I stared at him and adopted a theatrical, oh, come on now, pose, with jaw dropped for good measure. It felt good. I spoke the four one-syllable words slowly and deliberately, not even phrasing them as a question. And why is that? I could see my response had caught him by surprise, and he quickly did his best to disguise the fact, but no words came out of his mouth in response. Finally, Matt came to his rescue and chimed in. This Monica chick's got really big tits and doesn't even wear a bra. I looked at Matt, but decided not to shoot the messenger, and returned my gaze to Derek. And you have a problem with that? I asked him. I saw a flash of fear in his eyes, like he was caught in a contradiction, like he was some kind of prude or something. No, he scoffed defensively, just saying. It occurred to me that for someone like Derek, who maybe was really intimidated around female peers, Demeaning the women he was attracted to as sluts gave him an excuse for not being able to connect with them, or else he was fantasizing and if they were slutty enough, they would want to have sex with him despite his off-putting persona. Derek seemed an intense guy with a turbulent thought process, so perhaps it was both at the same time. I left the exchange at that, my humble little coopster skirmish triumph. I could feel my own libido spinning up, in my mind and below in my pants, as I was drawn into Derek's hyperbole and my own imagining of this sex goddess of a young woman, despite noting the misogyny of his characterization of her. And speak of the devil, or the goddess in this case, two women entered the common room from the hallway to the outside door. They'd obviously been outside because their cheeks were rosy. The taller one was indeed as gorgeous as he had described, maybe just 18 like all of us, stunning face with prominent cheekbones, gleaming blue eyes, short wavy platinum blonde hair, perhaps a lanky six feet tall, wearing just a t-shirt and jeans. Her breasts were large enough that the t-shirt she was wearing hung from the obvious poking through nipples and away from her stomach below, revealing her belly button. It was difficult as a mainly heterosexual young male type with little opportunity for relieving his libido not to stare at her, captured by her face and then eyes drawn downward 
to loiter lasciviously on her curves and imagine them fully exposed. I could feel my penis uncomfortably positioned in my pants. Her female comrade was maybe six inches shorter, with long, straight, light brown hair and big, nerdy, black plastic glasses, a mere mortal next to the goddess. The two young women sat with each other on the other side of the room and started playing cards. Noticing them, as we all immediately had, Derek lowered his voice to a deliciously conspiratorial whisper. Oh my fucking God, she's a friggin' Playboy centerfold. I gotta squeeze those tits. Then thinking for a moment with a scowl on his face, I'm sure she's totally stuck up. As we continued to talk about other things, we maintained our stealthy surveillance of the two of them, with Derek occasionally breaking into the flow of conversation to brag how he would do her, not bothering to whisper anymore, and perhaps even daring his words to be heard by her, or at least making the rest of us uncomfortable that they might. His two comrades would chime in their assent and second to his lewd proposals. My discomfort with this dynamic finally rose to the level where I decided to stand up and announce that I was going to walk down the hill into town to find a store to buy some groceries for my lunches, the only daily meal not already paid for from the hostel. Matt and Michael were quick to reply that they would join me and show me where the store was. Derek said nothing for a moment, pondering, perhaps, how to react to their little insurrection if you call it one, finally shrugging and replying as if asked for and granting permission. Sure, let's do it. The little road into town wound its way down the hill into the base of the valley in a circuitous path, presumably to lessen the slope and make it easier to traverse, particularly in these snowy winter conditions. The town had very few trees in its midst, so from the hillside above it one could see the somewhat grid of streets, houses and other buildings laid out neatly in the little basin amid the mountains that rose just beyond its limits. Several young kids came by, laughing and shouting and gliding down the road on their brightly painted wooden metal sleds. I recalled fondly many days when our dad used to take my brother and I with our red metal and wood flexible flyers to the Arboretum in Ann Arbor, where we could sled down a half dozen good-sized hill slopes, but nothing even remotely as long as the extended descent from the hostel maybe a half mile to the bottom of the slope in the center of the village by the little train station. The snow on the road was packed down, and was slippery enough and the grade steep enough that you had to be wary of sliding, losing your balance and falling on your butt. Given that and inspired by the kids on their sleds, I tried on purpose to run and slide and could go a good 10 feet before what friction there was between my boot soles and the packed snow stopped my momentum. Following my lead, Michael was doing the same and then Matt and finally Derek. We were just four kids playing in the snow, as other younger, more obvious-looking kids, without our physical stature and freak-flag hair, zoomed by us on their sleds. 
Derek trying as he would to run a bit faster and slide a bit farther, was the first one to lose his footing and land on his butt. Michael and Matt laughed when he did, and he responded with a derisive, Fuck you, though I noted some playfulness in it that I had not noticed before from him. But we all soon had done the same once or twice, falling on your butt becoming a welcome to Grindelwald rite of passage of sorts. Finally arriving at the little grocery store, I bought my key standard lunch provisions, salami, hard cheese, and a loaf of unsliced bread, though sadly not ciabatta. I noted that the groceries were significantly more pricey here than they'd been in Italy. Briefly contemplating a cheap jug of wine, Derek informed me that the hostel did not allow any alcohol on the premises but also that most evenings hostel guests and staff ended up in one of the village pubs for beer. It's got real alcohol in it and not like the shit back home, Matt noted. I think Ohio sold that lower alcohol beer in grocery stores. All of us with our bags of groceries made the more arduous trudge back up the road, having sometimes to walk with our toes pointed outwards and dig the edges of our boot soles into the packed snow to get enough traction on the slick surface. Normally such a walk with others would be filled with conversation, but we were all content to just huff and puff and suck in the clear cold air and take in the pristine winter vistas every which way we gazed. Back at the hostel, the common room was mostly empty though we all noted that sex goddess Monica was still at the table with her nippled tits and her female travel partner, their deck of cards neatly stacked between them and ready for action. The two of them noticed the four of us entering, nodded their heads to acknowledge us, Monica even fluttering her fingers in a wave before beginning a quiet but very focused conversation with her partner. Derek reacted to her gesture by looking away from the two of them and back at the three of us with big googly eyes and pantomiming a pant with mouth open and tongue between his lips as he plopped back down on his throne by the fire, filling the room with its radiating heat. Chilled from the excursion, Michael, Matt, and I assumed our previous spots by the fire. I was quick to partake of my purchased items since I had missed breakfast and the walk, particularly the trudge uphill, had heightened my need for sustenance. The others talked about what to do this afternoon. In the midst of my informal dining on thin slices of salami, carved slabs of cheese, and big bites of bread torn from the loaf, Monica sauntered over into our space seeking an audience. She and her nipples had our immediate attention. Without a hint of shyness or coyness, she said, Hello, do any of you guys know how to play hearts? She said guys in a tentative sort of way, as if she had just learned the word and wasn't sure she was using it appropriately in this context. She spoke her English with a Swedish accent, which made her even more sexy if that was even possible. The three Clevelanders furrowed their brows. I, on the other hand, was an accomplished hearts player and raised my hand in assent. Monica cast her blue-blue eyes on me, sizing me up in a friendly, smiling sort of way, and said, Good, we have one, but we need one more. 
and turned her gaze on the still-furrowed Clevelanders. The horny human equivalent of a deer in the headlights, Derek stared at her blankly for a very long, seeming couple seconds before managing to push words out of his mouth. I play poker? Monica scrunched up her nose and said, Okay, slowly, exaggerating each syllable. Her gaze turned to Michael, and her body language gave away that she had an instant attraction to him. He seemed to pick up on that vibe and ventured, I'm a quick learner, to which she responded with another, Okay, again slowly with exaggeration, but this time with a rise in her voice at that last syllable to contrast to the previous response to Derek. Then brightly, My name is Monica. We all nodded to indicate that, yeah, we knew that already. We had been briefed. Each of us gave her our name. To Matt and Derek, she suggested that they were welcome to watch and learn, and she abruptly turned and returned to her comrade at the table with the deck of cards, her awesome as alleged, but now on display. As Michael and I joined the two of them at the small table and Matt and Derek hovered behind, Monica introduced us all to her comrade Ragna. She had long, super straight, light brown hair, not gathered into any sort of a ponytail or braid, pursed lips and nerdy black plastic glasses, framing small grayish eyes, her hands already starting to compulsively and expertly shuffle the deck of cards as she looked at each of us in turn, Ragna waiting for Monica to introduce all of us before tersely responding, gentlemen, like some casino croupier. Her accent sounded more British and less Swedish than her travel partner's. I sat across from Michael with Ragna to my left and Monica across from Ragna and to my right. In her modulated croupier patter, Ragna quickly and succinctly explained the rules of the game to Michael. I noted how intently he listened, asking thoughtful, clarifying questions and thanking her at the end. She did not miss a beat when she suggested that we play one hand with cards on the table and talking through the strategy behind each choice of cards played. She deftly dealt out all the cards face up, 13 for each of us, organizing each person's hand in columns by suit as she dealt calling out key cards including the Evil Queen of Spades, which would set you back 13 points if one in a trick, not just one point like a heart. Unless, of course, you shot the moon successfully, winning tricks with all the hearts plus the Evil Queen. Once all our cards were on the table, literally if not figuratively, Ragna explained to Michael the pass of three cards on his first hand done to the left, and the various strategies as to which cards to pass and which to keep. She told Michael, though he might initially think to pass them, better to keep the queen and king of spades since he had three other spades to protect them. It's much better to have the lady to give away if you have the proper protection than to receive her. Spoken in flawless British English like some college professor instructing a class. She suggested he pass three of his four clubs to Monica to his left, saving the ace to play in the first trick to void himself in the suit. Monica and I, in turn, each indicated which three cards we would pass and the strategy behind passing those and not others in our hands, 
And finally, Ragna explained the reason she was passing the ace of spades to Michael and a couple higher hearts, but not her ace of diamonds. Since she had only one other spade, that was not enough to protect the ace from possibly forcing her to take the lady in a second spade trick before she could slough the ace in a trick where she was void of the suit lead. Michael's eyes rolled a little as he struggled to fully comprehend the nuances of strategy that Ragna was explaining. I had the two of clubs, which must be played first, and I placed it in the center of the table, Ragna nodding in assent and explaining that convention to Michael. As set up by his pass of three clubs to Monica, Michael ended up winning the first trick with his ace and now being void in a suit, generally a plus. We played through several tricks, including each of us explaining about having to follow suit if you had it, or playing any other card if you did not, including a heart or the queen of spades if you were void of the suit led. Ragna and I both led spades at one point and explained how we were trying to flush out the queen. Monica took the first trick with a heart in it, explaining the tactic of taking at least one heart. You take one heart, so nobody but you can shoot at the moon. There was no way my libido was going to let me correct the goddess, tell her it was really shoot the moon, lest I fall from her grace, but Ragna did not have the same hormonally driven compunction. It's shoot the moon, M. You're not talking pot shots at heavenly bodies. It was delivered in a droll, deadpan monotone with perfect timing. A great line reading, I had to admit. I noted Ragna referring to her comrade as M, but wasn't sure if that was a nickname or just the first letter of her name. Monica wrinkled her hellaciously cute nose. Forgive me, I am still learning my English. That's cool, said Michael. You're doing really good. Thank you, Michael, she responded, already using his name and smiling at him with twinkling eyes. You are so nice. I was so fucking jealous of him. Back to the hand, Monica played the queen of clubs, explaining to Michael that if we were playing for real and could not see each other's cards, that though she suspected he was void of clubs because he had passed three to her, she was betting on him not having the queen of spades. I and Ragna both threw in lesser clubs, and play came round to Michael. Void in clubs and with the queen of spades plus a couple hearts, Ragna explained that if he did not dump the wicked queen on this trick, which was Monica's to win based on her queen of clubs high, there was no guarantee he would have another opportunity. Michael did so, and Monica, who had obviously planned this to happen, pouted theatrically as she reached out to take the four cards of the trick she had just won, including the 13-point queen of spades. Continuing the mock display of sadness and anger, she made a sour face and beat on Michael's shoulder with her fist, saying, I hate you, and then letting out quite a hearty laugh, now massaging the spot in his shoulder she had just playfully pummeled. Notably, Monica's laugh came from her belly, full of joy, self-satisfaction, and even lust, and nothing like that coy, stereotypically feminine giggle young women sometimes employed around guys they were flirting with. When she let loose with it, I noticed Derek, watching the action from his vantage point behind Ragna, presumably to get the best possible view across the table of Monica's breasts, roll his eyes and grimace a bit. 
I could just imagine him again judging her a slut because of that unrestrained laugh. I certainly was jealous that her obvious attention was focused on Michael instead of me, but in no way did I think less of her because of it. I'm sure Ragna was seeing all the dynamics as well. She did not seem to miss a trick, pun intended. So the four of us played hearts through the afternoon until dinner time, with Derek and Matt in the peanut gallery behind Ragna with their great view of Monica's mountains and getting a running play-by-play -play from Ragna regarding each trick, the playing out of each hand, and who was winning in the overall scoring of the four players. Our game had plenty of ups and downs, dramatic moments, triumphs and tragedies within the context of the gameplay, plus shifting alliances targeting the player of the moment with the best, lowest score, which was generally Ragna. Michael had several hands where he misplayed his cards and ended up with 20-plus points, even though Monica and I did our best to try to get Ragna to take more points. I attempted to shoot the moon at one point, and along with Monica and Michael thought I had it. But then the final trick, Ragna had a nine of diamonds that beat my eight, and took that trick, including Michael's last sloughed heart, saddling me with 25 points. My heartfelt apologies, she said in her croupier monotone as she placed her card with a snap on top of mine and she gathered the four cards with her slender, dexterous fingers. She looked at me and I could see just a little raise of her left eyebrow and twinkle in her eye. With Michael almost over the limit of 100 points and Ragna in the lead, as usual with the least, Monica managed to shoot the moon despite her protestation throughout the hand that she was just trying unsuccessfully to lose the lead and not take all the heart tricks, then leading with the Queen of Spades as her last card to complete the brazen gambit. That added 26 points to every other player's score, putting Michael over 100 and giving Ragna an eye enough to put us above Monica in points, winning her the game. She was not so brazenly rude to laugh in victory, though I would have enjoyed hearing it, but I could see the extreme pleasure in her eyes that she had bested us male types, but particularly her brainiac travel partner. Throughout my life, I had found that a good four or more player card game, combining lots of strategy with some luck, with players having changing opportunities to ally with or play against each other, tends to be a great arena for every player's personality to shine and relationships to be forged. That was certainly true in this case. The four of us players were comfortable in each other's company, at least in the context of the game, though Monica and Michael taking it even farther with her obvious thing for him. I was in awe of both Monica's and Ragna's intelligence and gamesmanship plus their good hearts, and I think they, or at least Ragna, likewise appreciated my own. Based on a running commentary of the game to the peanut gallery, Ragna won Matt's admiration and even softened up Derek some. I don't know if he had ever had such a close encounter with an interesting female person where he wasn't just thinking about getting in her pants. But when the game was done, the spell of the moment was broken and we reverted to our old selves in our different worlds. 
Monica and Ragna went outside for a walk and did not invite any of us guys to tag along with them. I noted that Monica, who had just been wearing a t-shirt and jeans inside the hostel, just put on a light jacket, which she left open in front to go outside. She seemed to be a total polar bear with no sense of the cold. Derek, Matt, and Michael went back to the fire and got into a conversation with a couple guys from England about cars, with Derek all back in his alpha thing and the energy of the five guys boasting about this or that sports car really doing nothing for me. Since it was still light outside, I wandered back onto the deck, looked down on the village in the valley, still shrouded above by clouds. I brushed the snow off and sat in one of the wooden deck chairs, and manipulating my fingers to overcome the stiffness from the cold, I brought my journal up to date. At dinner time, the dining room and the common room filled with people. Many were obviously my cohort, young adult types with their freak flag hair, but there were others staying at the hostel who looked a bit older with shorter, more kempt hair, and they tended to sit separately from my peers and talk to each other. Derek, Matt, and Michael were sitting together, and I could see Derek gesturing and obviously holding forth about something. Monica and Ragna were off in a corner surrounded by a bunch of guys who seemed to be doing their best to try to chat them up. There was an open chair at the end of the table in the dining room where five other people were already sitting and talking in English. I got my tray and filled a big bowl with some sort of meat and vegetable stew out of a very large kettle and then took a couple of rolls as well. In the past, I would have been gun-shy to take that seat at a table with five strangers. But on this day, at this point in my odyssey, it just seemed the coopster thing to do, and I had no reticence to sit there. The young woman across from me was in a very animated conversation with the others at the table about travel logistics, a common topic among my backpacker cohort. I ate my stew, which was hot and delicious and listen to her and others arguing about how best to buy a used VW van in Amsterdam. By her accent, she was an obvious Aussie, loud and brash like many of her comrades. With my libido still percolating in high gear, I was instantly attracted to her, even though she seemed a bit full of herself. Of course, the other four guys at our table, who she was going back and forth with, all seemed a bit full of themselves as well, so maybe she was just giving as good as she got, not about to be cowed by a bunch of loudmouth male types. She would cast a furtive look my way in between her verbal salvos with the other guys. I could feel my normal timidity cautioning me to keep quiet, but I decided to ignore it and speak to her. I figured I would get her attention and throw her off guard a bit with a compliment. The next time she stopped talking and glanced my way, I pointed at her and said that she appeared to have some expertise on travel logistics. She seemed a bit stunned and looked at me more carefully than her previous glances, trying to process who I was. Now enjoying her full attention, at least momentarily, I told her that my current plan was to get to Amsterdam on the last day of my rail pass, stay a couple days, and then see if I could get a boat from there back to England that wasn't too expensive. I could see by her body language that she had reacted positively to my compliment. 
She said the boats from the Hook of Holland in Ostend, Belgium, were expensive. She suggested I might be better off, if I was tight on funds, to try hitching down to Calais and taking a much cheaper boat across the channel there. It felt like I was in a tennis match, and she had returned my serve, and now I needed to hit it back in her court. I told her I'd done plenty of hitchhiking, but wasn't the weather likely to be shitty this time of year and therefore more difficult for hitching? I used the expletive instead of just cold and rainy because it seemed to better match her swagger with a little of my own. She made a face as she pondered my point, and I could see in her eyes the calculations firing in her mind. So if I was going to pay for the train to Calais from Amsterdam, she figured the boat from the Hook across the North Sea to Harwich probably wasn't that much more. I nodded my head and said thanks. That seemed like good advice, followed by telling her my name, falling right into the protocol I had learned from Jen and Trix. My name's Cooper. It's a pleasure. I stuck out my hand across the table, and wiping hers first on her sleeve, she took it. Beth, pleasure, she said, before immediately being drawn back into the conversational fisticuffs with the four other guys at the table. As I continued to eat my stew, now ripping apart and dipping my rolls and the remnants of liquid in my bowl, I pondered the last week and a half's end game of my European odyssey as Beth continued her back and forth with the four guys but now glancing at me occasionally and making faces for my consumption at one of their comments. Though my thinking seemed to change every day, right now it was to stick to my original plan and take the boat from the Hook to Harwich and then maybe find the Canes in Colchester or back to Oxford to see the Clays, or both even. It might cost me more, but that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to arrive in London with eight days until my plane flight home. I would stick to the plan as it was before, night of December 1st to Munich, 2nd to Amsterdam, reserve flight in Amsterdam on the 4th, boat to England on the 5th. With the huge mountains outside waiting, presumably patiently, to reveal themselves to me, I continued to finish the bread in my big bowl of delicious stew surrounded by my backpacker cohort, while I watched Beth pontificate on travel logistics across from me. I pondered my own European Odyssey's upcoming swan song, my mind realizing I was hearing someone playing the piano in the common room. It was Jethro Tull's Life's a Long Song, and I heard a male voice high and trembling, a tenor, I thought, singing out the lyrics. When you're falling awake and you take stock of the new day and you hear your voice croak as you choke on what you need to say Well, don't you fret, don't you fear I will give you good cheer Life's a long song Life's a long song Life's a long song. If you wait, then your plate I will fill. The gestalt of it all, happening at the same time, sent shivers through the skin on my arms, 
making the goosebumps rise, and I could feel the tears collecting in the lids under my eyes. I had so much I needed to say, but was not yet ready to say it. We all did, and life was indeed a long song, a marathon and not a sprint. At its best, a long series of adventures. And I was suddenly so fucking proud of myself and grateful that I had made that decision to continue on this one when my travel partner Angie had decided to bail and return to the States. Yeah, it had been fear of going home empty-handed, as it were, that overcame the anxiety and homesickness I felt on the thought of continuing. But whatever the motivations, I had made the right choice, and I was now the grateful beneficiary. The tentative voice at the piano continued. As the verses unfold, and your soul suffers a long day, and the twelve o'clock gloom spins the room, you struggle on your way. Well, don't you sigh, don't you cry, lick the dust from your eye. Life's a long song, life's a long song, life's a long song. We will meet in the sweet light of dawn. So concludes the 32nd chapter of Two Inch Heels. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next chapter, where the majority of us Grindelwald hostile guests descend to the tavern in town for happy hour, apparently a daily hostile ritual. And I have my first close encounter with Ragnar. <laughs>